Hello listeners, I'm Logan McLean, and this is OJT on the Job Training. It's a podcast where I, a rookie journalist, practice my craft by interviewing passionate people about their projects. Natasha Penteluk was here a few months back to talk about her science background and master's research. Today, we step away from work and into the woodshop as Natasha shares some of her other interests. We talk about ham radio, search and rescue, and the joys of owning the shop where everyone wants to hang out. Let's talk about a couple of those things then. Um, you've mentioned Colin a couple of times. Tell me about your significant other. Uh, yeah, so my partner's Colin. Um, and kind of one of my, my, my favorite things about our relationship, and I think that this is something that is always great when you can find another person, be it a friend, maybe even coworker or a mentor partner, that really helps you move forward and be excited and believe in your ability to push yourself and try new things. I think that that is such a such a great thing to look for in, in the people to surround yourself with. And so together we do a lot of volunteering. We do search and rescue. Um, he volunteers as the emergency management coordin- coordinator for the uh, kind of northern area of the local amateur radio club. I also got my amateur radio license uh, when he got his, which was the most difficult exam I've ever taken in my life. (laughs) Just saying something. Um, And uh, uh, there's other things that I'd I'd love to probably volunteer with more. I spent in 2020, I was the fisheries director for the um, Sherwood Park Fishing Game Association, um, which is the largest fishing game association in all of Alberta. And that was awesome as a to give me really really good insight into um how kind of like fishermen um, here anglers here in alberta worked uh and yeah and then also on the side you know i have my families here which is fantastic again my favorite thing about alberta and we have a woodworking shop and we love to do that and it's you know it's really getting to the the thing where Everything since I was a kid, like, you know, you were pointing out is that it's about exploration. It's about curiosity. It's about never being satisfied necessarily with just the simple approach to things. And, um, I, and, I, and I've been really trying to apply that curiosity and fervor and excitement to all areas of my life. So you said amateur radio. Is that ham radio? Yeah. <laughs> yes, my call sign is VA6, November Uniform Tango. Uh, I said it was nut because I'm an ecologist and I like trees, but then the government said that I wasn't allowed a license plate because they said it looked like vaginut. Um, and <laughs> you truly haven't lived until you've had uh, 20 80-year-old men uh go attack the government on your behalf for your right to have a license that says vaginut. That's that's truly living. Did you say a license plate like on your car? Yeah, so um, ham radio uh, operators have an agreement with the government saying that for a very minimal cost, we can have our license plate, our call sign is our license plate. Um, and it's for various reasons because ham radio has been a big part of uh, Canada's history. We're celebrating our 100th our, the Northern Radio Club of Edmonton is celebrating its 100th anniversary um, 
soon, like within a within the year. It has already passed. I forget. <laughs> I'm a bad member. Um, and also for emergency use services so that they can look at the license plate, recognize it's a call sign, and know that the person has access to um, sort of like off-grid communication avenues. Um, and But then when I asked for my license plate, they said I couldn't have it because they said it's inappropriate. And... I'm still bitter, and we're gonna we're gonna draw up another campaign soon to get myself that license plate because I'm not gonna change my call sign. I'm in too deep now. So tell me a bit about what amateur radio involves. I've heard a little bit about it before. It always kind of sounded cool. Um. Yeah. I mean, I'm gonna. Oh, I wish that Colin was able to ask me this question for me. But basically, um, amateur radio. You know, radios. There's the the bands that you have walkie-talkies on and then you have the bands that uh you have uh um cb like citizens band which truckers use to talk to each other and then you have the bands that you have your radio stations on and these are all very small sections of the band and also as a citizen walkie-talkies if you go and get a walkie-talkie from the store i think it's maxed out at three watts so there's only a certain power allowed you're only allowed on certain channels and a certain power but with um, ham radio, um, amateur radio bands actually take up a huge portion of the spectrum. And depending on what part of the spectrum it is, they're able to, to do different things. Like so uh, the like the longer bands, you can bounce off of the moon or passing satellite and you can or the atmosphere, and you can go around the whole earth. And it's just point to point as well. So it's not reliant on infrastructure, which, of course, from an emergency management point of view is great. Um, but then also for ham radio, you can use higher power. So even our little handhelds, um, they are six watt as opposed to walkie talkie that be three watt. So even as we're walking around, we're able to use basically just like super powered walkie talkies. And then in our cars, um, we have even uh, better ones. And it's it's really interesting because it's like, you know, when the Internet was invented and like everything i think people kind of forgot there i think people just thought like oh this is now better than ham radio you know we don't have to think about ham radio anymore um and and it is one of those things where it's like no their applications are different and you know it and people don't realize how important amateur radios are and how wonderful of a technology they are until you need them and when you need them you should have already thought of it and it's uh and it's crazy because it's like the bleeding edge of ham radio isn't some research institute from like you know some fancy university it's like some random dude named greg in the outback of california with some copper tape and a hula hoop <laughs> like it's it's a really interesting field and you know from an emergency management point of view it's super important like for example in forest fires um or well any emergency situation um like sort of to towers like cell phone towers they can only hold a certain load and in an emergency situation everyone's calling all their family members and all the lines are getting kind of blocked up and news reporters once they get a line if they get a connection um they will not hang up for the rest of the emergency in case they can't reconnect. Um, and so you think, oh, I have a cell phone. You might not actually. Like if an emergency happens, that's not necessarily always there when you think it is. Only that, but in a situation like a forest fire, um, the if the, the flame gets inside of some of the wirings going up into cell phone towers, it can the fire can basically go up the line. So what they did in certain areas, I think of the Fort McMurray fire, please let this be true, um, is they had to actually cut the cell phone, the like the lines, 
um, cutting off people's ability to communicate because if it the fire had gone all the way up to the tower, the tower the tower would have been completely destroyed for like forever. Um, and so just all these infrastructure that we rely on and think of as these immovable things that just exist are actually maintained kind of down to a budget and they're not always there and having point-to-point communication so communication that doesn't involve doesn't have to involve a middleman is super valuable for lots of different situations now of course for the most part just used for old guys to talk about what they had for lunch um but Uh (laughs) there are um actual practical uh, applications as well so you mentioned the band that these function on i know the very littlest about how radio stuff works. Uh, could you give a kind of very simplified version of what that means? Um, so like by band, I mean like, you know, when you think of a wave, the, when the waves are like really small, yeah. Um, all the way up to when the, where the waves are really, really, really big. And um, radio is located at a, at a certain, has like, you know, ha, uh, like a, Music stations have a very small little part on that gigantic, you know, scale of all radio wave sizes. And walkie-talkies have a tiny little part of it as well. And certain companies can buy buy certain little spots too um, so that they can, like, you know, the military, for example, or uh, police, they'll buy. They have, well, they have, like, certain sections of it as well. Um, but... Most of the band is open for um, amateur radio um, and different different sizes of uh, the of that wave are good for different things. Like if you want to go really, really far, um, you're using the the longer size. So that's the one that you're going to be bouncing off the moon or bouncing off the atmosphere, things like that or going really long distances. Um, that sort of thing involves a uh, bigger antenna and power source than we have at our house. Um, but then there's, you know, everything in the middle or down to the to the lower end where walkie talkies are and things like that. This is definitely making me I'm going to go home and do some research on how the hell radios work. Yeah, I mean, I wish I was able to talk about all the, the cool things. I mean, also, it's, you know, you are sending information that also can be binary, right? I mean, that's what like Morris is. Mm-hmm. Um is is you know the binary of signal no signal signal no signal and and that if you're talking about um uh uh, binaries well now you're talking about data and you can send data over ham radio as well well at that point you're basically talking about free dial-up you know and the application that that has is amazing because you know you're in an area there's no internet you're trying to send a report you're trying to send an email you're trying to communicate with people outside of that area maybe not an emergency situation maybe you're just out in the middle of nowhere um well you can uh set up a wind link connection and technically email out of that area all without having to pay for an internet bill so um there are some really amazing applications um that are really under recognized i think even in the ham radio community once you start using it for just talking to your friends for so long i think you forget about how useful it actually would be for people outside of ham to know about that sounds good for some of the stories I do where I have to drive out of the city and about halfway there, I always get the message, GPS signal lost. I go, oh, fuck, this is a small province, but there are so many roads. 
Yeah. So what we have hooked up is we have a, uh, um, I think it's, what's it called? APRS. Um, and it is sending a, um, a digitized, but over the, over the radio waves, um, uh, coordinate for yourself of like where the radio is over the radio waves to the internet. And then on the internet, it then puts it, makes you a little icon on an interface that you can see of a map. So that means that like uh, Colin has to drive all the time to crazy places to do work. And I'm able to, no matter where he is, I can see where his car is, um, even if he's outside of cell phone range and everything. So yeah, the applications for um, safety and just people working in like cell phone unreliable areas is huge. Would this work in the event of like a solar flare or something else that shuts down the power grid? Um, it's point to point. So as long as your power is working between the two units, then it's fine. So if you had a generator um, or a big battery. Yeah, I, actually, it's funny. The um, So like the, the kind of the intensity of the sun. Um, oh, man, if there's some ham radios listening, they're going to rip me a new one because they're like, you didn't explain this properly. <laughs> um, but is kind of changes on a 10 year cycle. And for the last 10 years, it's been kind of weak. And we're actually late due for a strengthening of those kind of like flares and the radiation. And unfortunately, when the radiation is low, our atmosphere is that much thinner and it's harder to bounce things off the atmosphere. Hmm. So for the, fa- for the past like decade, the kind of the whole part of the radio community that does a lot of like uh, bouncing off the atmosphere communication um, is not as... Um, you know, it happening as it usually is because that's not really available right now. Um, so we're all, but we're we're due for better solar radi- radiation pretty soon. Yeah. So we're all crossing our fingers and hoping that that comes back because then we can start talking to our friends in Australia a little bit, a little bit easier, but more often. Fingers crossed for radiation. <laughs> fingers crossed for radiation. Exactly. You also mentioned doing some search and rescue stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was. I never, I didn't even think it was really on the table until Colin saw that it was, um, that they were doing a, uh, kind of a recruiting for the first time in three years. And it was, and we, and the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this sounds so perfect because, you know, my curiosity about how things happen, where things happen, what's going on, you know, does spread to everything, including things like, um, you know, true crime. I don't want to sound like I'm like fetishizing the experience um, because it's like very serious. It's not like I'm like getting my rocks off on dealing with these very serious things. Um, but there's always been like a draw for me. And then also just it, practically speaking, search and rescue in Edmonton, like urban search and rescue is mostly walking around either going door to door to ask for things or walking around predominantly outside looking for small bits of things, looking for evidence or um, bodies or um, looking for people. And I mean, if that's basically field work, field work is going out predominantly in nature, looking for small signals of things. Um, like bodies. It, it, came, it came pretty naturally to me. Um, it, it felt really similar to a lot of the field work I had done uh especially in my undergrad. So it felt a good ma- a mix. Plus, um, I, I know that I and Colin have the support systems 
in order to be aware and in touch with ourselves about any trauma that we may incur in this job. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was something that I want to be really conscious of. Like, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be walking into this thing having absolutely no game plan for when or if that does happen. Right. Um, and we do have those systems in place and we do have like know what is available to us in terms of like trauma counseling or processing or even just mental health first aid and things like that. Uh so I felt like I was capable of doing it. I'm capable of doing it. I have the time to do it. And therefore, would it not be immoral for me to not do it? <laughs> Almost feels like what it is. Did you anything significant happen while doing that kind of stuff? Anything crazy? No, we've only been... We did our training and then COVID hit. And for a while, there was issues with the insurance um for search and rescue here which meant that if you got lost then good luck because <laughs> no one was able to look for you um and uh but then the insurance got figured out uh and so we've only had a couple ones missing persons um and then a edmonton has a giant river valley going through it so at the end of the summer multiple times a year but also at the end of the summer before like it snows we do like another search normally for specific cases so trying to find like specific evidence or bodies but also just generally like walk through the river valley you never know what you'll find um and uh so no i haven't i haven't uh witnessed anything difficult yet myself um yet and the other thing you mentioned is woodworking tell me a bit about that how you got into it um yeah i it it was it's something that Colin's always really liked doing. It was one of the reasons why we ended up having to rent a house and not just like a, a cheaper apartment. It was that he has a giant wood shop full of um supplies, which has been, you know, amazing for us because I found out that I really enjoyed, you know, working with wood and working with my hands and creating things. I mean, being able to start working on something and instantly see the progress that's being made in physical real time is mm. amazing coming from research because that is not how research works. Uh, yeah. um, but how nice it was, especially before COVID, um, as a place for people to use as sort of like a maker space as well. Like all of our friends and family, they'd come over, they'd sometimes just swing by to pick up, you know, some sanding papers and the random orbital sander, maybe a little bit of stain. Um, somebody would, uh, but then even I had a friend that is, uh, she works in theater locally and she built an entire set in our, with our garage. And we were mentioned in the playbill and there was somebody who came and, and, and built a picture frame for his girlfriend and it, it was so nice because especially when I was starting my master's, so many people were coming from abroad, coming from all over the world, living in little apartments. They didn't have any tools whatsoever. So the fact that I was able to offer that to fellow master's students being like, you can come by whenever you want. We're pretty centrally located and we'll help you do whatever you want to do um, was great for them. And it was, it was a great excuse to have people to, to be able to see people as well and just kind of have a, a low pressure social interaction which is like hey come by maybe we'll be here maybe we'll have a beer i don't know we'll see did you ever take any shop classes or anything in high school anything like that i wish it wasn't yeah. offered home ac shop none of that was offered at my high school and junior high it was only like bad. 
pure arts, unfortunately, which I would have, I would have, I would have loved to do those things, yeah. but it's okay. I've, I've since taken up like sewing and woodworking and yeah. doing all those things. So. Never too late. I've, My dad's learning to cook at 59. Never too late. He's quite good at yeah. it, actually. I still have a, I still have a wood uh, shelf that I made in wood shop in grade 10. I've seen it looks awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. It is so gratifying to do that. And even like uh, one of my favorite things is just having the tools at hand where nothing you can quickly do something like, for example, yeah. like our Christmas tree, our Christmas tree stand. Um, the the Christmas tree is too wobbly. So we need to quickly whip up a piece of wood that would fit perfectly into the bottom of the stand and would have like a screw up the middle of it. So the tree could just go right in and we just, you know, pop out. We have, you know, all the tools in like less than five minutes. We suddenly have this exact custom made piece of wood that fits the exact task we need. And, you know, everything can be repaired. There's never, there's never a barrier to repairing something other than our own willingness to put the time in. I lost the stand for my TV. Do you think I could come over and build one there? (laughs) You know, I think you might have to wait a little while and uh, wait for flight, but otherwise... Hell yeah. I'll take the train. There's no flights left from PEI to anywhere. <laughs> Air Canada <laughs> killed everything. Yeah. Do you have any particular things you've made that kind of mean mean a lot to you? Um, you know, I haven't made a lot of uh, made, made a lot of things from scratch that mean a lot, but I have done some repairs or refurbishing. Like I refinished um my bubba's jewelry box which is really nice to do and we found this we found this um uh kind of credenza side table on facebook marketplace for 20 bucks from this uh old prison in saskatchewan in the 50s and it was just a horrible disrepair and but we brought it back and we remade it and it's like probably four hundred dollars worth of solid maple on that thing as well uh, and it's super cool and super funky and is just, you know, it's, and the, the, the craftsmanship is, a, is amazing. There's these just immaculate dovetails in the back of the drawers where you can't even see it, just needlessly well done in, in certain places. Uh, and it, and, and doing, and doing those sort of things, kind of giving things new life or repurposing them. That's probably been one of my, have, have been my, my favorite things to do. Yeah. With wood, it, it's amazing that like when you take off what's there wood is beautiful you know it's got that natural grain and you can do so much with uh like you said what is a a well-constructed piece of furniture is that the kind of thing that you did like refinish it and stuff yeah yeah it was the the it has this weird maple solid slab top and sides and we were able to just run those through um Oh gosh, what's the piece of it? Yeah, having, I always never call things by the proper name. It's always like the spinny thing and the other thing. They all spin. <laughs> the shop would have been good for me maybe to get the actual names of things down. But we just kind of stripped off the wood on both the top and bottom mm. because it was a it was a hard varnish um, uh, that was used previously. Um, and there was plenty of wood there. So we were able to do that. And then the, the front was wood was already painted black. So we just painted black over top of that after doing a quick sanding to make sure it'd stick. Um, for the most part, yeah. Well, I think that might be a good place to leave this, Natasha. Cool. Um, would you like a descri- description of Prussian carp? Yes. Okay. 
Cool. I was like, that's the only thing. I mean, if we have to move into a different part. You did um, describe them as being, they look like a goldfish and hard. You couldn't really tell them apart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'll do it like a really quick. Um, How about I ask you a question thing. to set it up? Perfect. Perfect. Can you describe the Prussian carp and tell me a little bit about what it makes it an invasive species too? What kind of the problem is with it being around? Yeah, so like, you know, if you can imagine a goldfish, just a regular goldfish you might have seen growing up, uh, it, a goldfish looks like that. Um, and now the gold type does exist, but after time and generations, they will it will get larger and uh, they will normally or frequently be more of an olive bronze color, maybe more silver. Um, Prussian carp are basically identical, um, but they're a bit more silvery brown than goldfish sometimes. Again, you can't really tell the difference between the two. I think some people are saying that they're able to find the difference based on certain things, but uh, I can't tell the difference, so I certainly wouldn't imagine uh, ask just a like a regular citizen to tell the difference between the two. Um, they both come, all Carassius, come in a range of sizes, Carassius being the genus that both goldfish and Prussian carp belong to. Um, but Prussian carp are normally between like 10 and 35 centimeters, like a foot, two feet, and goldfish will push that a bit more frequently. So maybe be between 10 and 48 centimeters. Um, but we're really running the gambit here. And, uh, one thing to tell the difference between carp and other species that might be native, uh, I'd always recommend looking at pictures and trying to figure out what works for you to tell the difference. But one of the main things that I find is the number and size of scale. So, uh, there, the scales of Carassius are really quite large, especially compared to uh, any native fish. They'll normally have like 29 or th to 33 if it's an adult scales from like nose to tail. Whereas, you know, a, um, you know, other fish, you know, you're, you're going to be doing 40 or more, which when you, when you look at it, you know, the, the Carassius looks like a thick, heavy brute of a of a large scaled beast right. like that's the that's the impression that they give um and then to, to your other question kind of like you know what they're doing here um i'm really excited for shana hamilton at the university of regina um she's a master's student cur currently researching the distribution and diet of prussian carp in saskatchewan so uh, pretty soon here, hopefully we're going to get more details as to what they're doing uh, here on the prairies. But for now, I can't say exactly what their for sure impact will be in North America until, you know, only time will tell. But based on their invasive range in Europe, we're bracing for them to take over our whatever water bodies they invade, um, reduce the populations of native species and in places even become the most abundant fish. There's this Greek paper that came out that was surveying uh, this lake every year in Greece. And year one, they found an individual Prussian carp because they can clone themselves. So they don't need a mating pair. And by year eight, the fish biomass was 95% Prussian carp. They can reproduce only one because they can clone themselves. They can survive for days out of water. People have seen them freeze, defrost, and flop like they never even cared. They just, you know, goldfish are bad and they're and they're both invasive, but Prussian carp are like X Games mode. Like they're just they're 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 goldfish mark two. They're they're even more of a of a big deal. Um 
So yeah, it's really important that, you know, I don't think we can, eradication is probably not on the table for Prussian carp. That's not really the point of this. Like, for, from most of these places, uh, if they're here, they're here, unless you can totally drain and kill everything in a, like a pond, for example. But what we can control, or at least delay, um, is their spread. And when it comes to invasive species, every cent that you spend and every bit of effort that you spend on delaying the spread of an invasive species is always worth it. We'll always come back tenfold in monetary gains and the livelihood and well-being of those in the area. It is it is just so important that we know how far they've gotten so we can really focus on not taking them any further. And I mean, this is an Alberta and Saskatchewan, but for anybody listening, you probably do have invasive species, plants, um, aquatic plants, fish, diseases as well. Uh, you know, it, it is it is something that we can all really easily do our part in preventing as well. Um, of course, try to identify them and report them if you see them, but also um, for anybody doing aquatic sports out there, clean, drain, and dry your boat and your gear before you move to a different water body. If you're always going to the same one, it don't matter none. <laughs> but if you're going to a different water body, please make sure everything is clean, drain, and dry. And if you catch it, you kill it for anything invasive like this. If you ever catch a Prussian carp, do not release it back into the water. Um, if you find an invasive plant on your shoe, don't just pick it off. Please put it in the garbage. Things like that is those little acts, because sometimes all it takes is one person going to a new area and suddenly it's it can it can lead to devastation. That's an idea that should be familiar to everybody these days. Yes, hopefully this has all been a good lesson and it just takes one to lead to devastation. Things can spread quick. I think clean, drain, and dry your boat is good advice for life. Yes, and it also is good for your gear. Yeah. It'll help it too. Less rust. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's it for my interviews with Natasha Pintaluk. For now, anyway. She's always up to something. Until then, you can check out Natasha's CV on the website she built herself at natashalynn.ca. That's Natasha, L-Y-N-N She also suggested listeners check with their local governments for invasive species in their area and what they can do to prevent the spread of problem-causing plants and animals. You can follow me on Instagram at logan.mclean.75 and on Twitter at loganmclean94. And finally, listeners, please check out my website, ojtpod.ca, for my written stories and photography. The podcast is available there and on all major streaming platforms. Please rate and subscribe and leave a review. Everything helps when getting a podcast off the ground, and if you like this show and want more interesting guests, listener feedback is the best way to help me reach new people and make that happen. This has been OJT, On the Job Trading. I'm Logan McLean. Thank you for listening.